Hello, hello, friends, and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your host. I'm excited to bring you today's episode with Maxwell Johnston. He created a new route in Texas called the Hill Country Route because it's in the Hill Country, and it's a route, and you can ride your bike on it. And that's what we did. Uh, almost as immediately whenever I saw it put on bikepacking.com, I'm very familiar with the area. And, uh, also Maxwell is a very good photographer in my opinion. I really like his style of photography. And so his pictures really jumped off the page and, um, Partially, I wanted to have him show me around the route, give me a personal tour, you know, and talk to me about why he created the route and how and all the things. And I also wanted to uh, kind of pick his brain about photography. I do appreciate him taking the time to to give me a guided tour. It was, it was really great. And I did get some good photography tips. And the route itself is truly incredible. The roads are beautiful and camping was great and the food was great and um, we are going to talk about it all on this podcast so I'm not going to get too into the weeds right there with that Um, but I would like to go on to say that we try something new on this episode and sometimes when you try something new um, you learn a lot and this was definitely a learning uh, opportunity for me Uh, the idea here was that we would each um, be mic'd up while we rode our bikes and do a portion of the interview while we were riding. And I like the concept, um, but I definitely need to dial in the audio portion of it. And um, there's some other tweaks that I definitely need to make. So anyways, my apology to you, the listener, and to Maxwell. I hope it doesn't detract from this episode too much. You know, whenever you try something new, eh, it doesn't always go exactly the way you wanted it to, um, but it's always a learning experience. And I promise that next time, if I try a format like this, it'll be better. One other note about this episode, I did not know this going in, but Maxwell is a recovering addict from alcohol and drug abuse. And uh, that's something that I also have a relationship with. And we actually kind of shared a lot of commonalities. Um, And so during this conversation, we actually have a fairly heady conversation about drug and substance abuse, as well as recovery, which is something that uh, Maxwell is very passionate about. And I know that this is something that almost everybody has been touched with in their lives, either directly or indirectly. Um, So, you know, it doesn't exactly go with the overall theme of the route. Uh, So if that's not what you're here for, that's totally fine. You can skip that part. But for those that are interested, I hope that you will get value um, out of that. And I certainly appreciate Maxwell opening up and sharing his experiences. It's always the hope that when you do that, somebody out there needs to hear it and it will do good. All right. Well, before we get to the episode... Let us thank our newest sustaining members of the Bikes for Death podcast. You may have heard that I'm seeking employment as the full-time host of the Bikes for Death podcast. Over the last few years, I've been doing this in my spare time between kids and my other job and my other job, and I'm ready to step up and ask you to hire me to be the full-time host of the podcast. Ever since we started this initiative, the response has been absolutely insane um, to the point where I'm like, holy shit, uh, this might be happening a little bit sooner and a little bit faster than I expected. 
And, um, I don't know, it could be a reality. I'm trying, it's a weird thing because like part of me is like getting really excited because you're about to hear this list of names that I'm about to read. Um, y'all have just been stepping up big time. And so I'm thinking, Oh shit, I might be actually quitting my job and doing this full time. So I'm kind of like mentally preparing for that, but at the same time trying not to like get too excited. And I don't know. It's, it's fun though. It's fun. I like it and I appreciate all of y'all. So let's get right to the shout outs. This week's newest sustaining members are Corey Colon, Adam Z, Eric Brunn, Jeff Sapp, Anthony Roach, Nate Lehman, Rachel Clayton, Stephen Rickards. I believe it's Rickards and not Richards. I hope I got that right. Oh, the next one's going to be a challenge. All right. The next one is Avanish Ignatis. Avanish Ignatis. Uh, Daniel Link. And <laughs> the Eggman Cometh. Heck yeah. We also have Claire Panacea, who is going to be one of my upcoming guests. I just um, interviewed her while I was up in Oklahoma. So thank you, Claire, for uh, becoming a patron. We also have David Nichols. And the next one, oh, we have someone from Estonia. Wow, all the way from Estonia. Tonu Tunnel. Hopefully I got that one right. Again, if y'all ever want me to pronounce your name correctly, you can always send an audio file of your pronunciation to bikes at bikesordeath.com. And I always try to get the names right. Okay, and continuing on. We're almost there, we're almost there. Austin Shaw. Arturo Lopez, Claire Richard, Adam Coes. Oh, how do you say that last name? Adam Coes? Okay. Um, sorry about that, Adam. And John Fernandez. Okay. That's everybody. If you weren't counting, that's 19 new patrons. And I also want to just give a quick shout out to two patrons who increased their pledges and they are Damiana Day and Tim Nipper. So thank you all for increasing your pledges so much. Seriously, thank you to all you, all the patrons and everybody who is stepping up to making this my full-time job. Seriously, how cool would that be? All right, and one other note about Patreon. The new patron podcast, The Bikes or Death After Party, the first episode was with Dr. Seth Wood. I interviewed him live in Stillwater, Oklahoma at District Bicycles. And we had patrons interacting in real time. It was freaking awesome. If you missed that, if you weren't a patron, anytime you sign up as a patron, you'll have access to all the archived old episodes. Right now, there's only two patron-only podcasts, but the next after party is already in the works with Andrew Onerma. So we're going to be having him come back and talk with patrons directly. It's going to be sick. So please, won't you join us? You know, it only costs a dollar a month. And you can give more if you're feeling generous. Find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. That's it. We did it. Now, without further ado, let's have Miles Arbor take it away with the bikes or death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars and 
including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. So I'm out here today on the new Texas Hill Country Loop that was published on bikepacking.com by route creator extraordinaire. Is that fair? <laughs> Maxwell Johnston. That's a little far <laughs> off. I, I, route making, route creator amateur. Oh, we got a, oh, a grasshopper. Okay. Big one. Juicy. Gee, I've never seen a juicy grasshopper. No, that like was, that, that was huge. I love it. This is gonna, this is gonna be fun. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're trying something new today. We're gonna try to uh, ride the route. I'm gonna get my first look at it and uh, give everybody kind of an idea what they could expect when they came out here and rode it themselves. Like what, what is the Texas Hill Country route? Just give us like a, a an overview of it. So the Texas Hill Country route is a, uh, a very beginner-friendly uh, lollipop route that starts at Oxford Ranch Campground right outside of Llano, Texas. So uh, about 80 miles west of Austin. I uh, tried bikepacking for the first time like a year and a half ago, and I based it around like the, the Castell gravel grind uh, out in Castell, Texas. Yeah, which that route is pretty well known for being like some of the best, if not the best gravel um, in Texas, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's a 100K race. Of course, they have different variations, but it's it's a 100K two loop, a north and a south loop. There's a, a campground, a Life SD campground right on the Llano River in the middle of that, right outside of Castell. I thought it was a good way to test out bikepacking. I was like, man, more people have got to do this. Just looking at all the routes in Texas, there's a big gaping hole in between East Texas with that amount of public land and then West Texas with Big Bend. Yeah. So yeah, I wanted to get Central Texas bike packing on the map. So I connected the Texas Overland route, uh, which is a route that was kind of designed for off-road vehicles from Horseshoe Bay to right outside of Fredericksburg. And then that connects to the Castell gravel grind. So is it gonna get rough? It won't get too rough. I mean, depends on what your definition of rough is. I, I mean, <laughs> it's, well, are they maintain gravel roads or is it off-roading roads? For the most part, they're maintained gravel roads. Yeah. Well, that brings up another question. How much of the route is gravel and how much is pavement? Uh, it's pretty close to 50-50. To I think it's like a, a 53-47 split. Seems like that's everywhere in Texas. Yeah. We're on the first hill trying to talk <laughs> and cresting a major summit here in Texas. We're at, what elevation are we at? Well, this is actually some of the highest elevation in Central Texas. You're on like the Llano uplift right now. I don't know much about geology, but I know that right at Austin, the coastal plains fault, or it's the Balcones fault, and the coastal plains hits and causes a big elevation gain right now. So, 
Fort Texas. We're at uh, 1,437 feet. Fort Texas, this is some decent elevation. Well, what you really stumbled on, or maybe didn't stumble on, but what you kind of opened up my mind to was that there's a resource of private camp owners, but there's public land, uh, not public land, private land that they've opened up to the public and we can utilize those to create routes. And I can't tell you how many times I've got an email or a DM on Instagram. Hey man, you don't need routes in the hill country? No, but if someone would make one, that'd be great, you know? <laughs> and one day I'm cruising along bikepacking.com and there you are, Texas Hill Country Loop. So I think uh, it was just smart to shift the focus away from only utilizing the public land and the public, you know, campsites. But yeah, bring in those private, private held land uh, and utilize those. And did you see that there's a, uh, a grave site on your route for, oh, I forget his name right now, uh, Lehman, Harold Lehman, maybe, who was captured at like eight years old or 12 years old and lived with the Cherokees for like eight years, something like that. And his gravesite is on, on your route. I, I think I've heard that story. I didn't know, I didn't know the gravesite was, yeah. was on the route. So I got it marked so we can go take a look at it today. That's bad, it's at yes. like mile 22. Go find his gravesite. And, uh, you know, it's fun if you got a route like this to learn some of the cultural history or social history or whatever that, that comes along with it. Even... The terrain. Yeah. Woo, downhill. Yeah, buddy. I'll talk to you at the bottom. Woo! Yeah! Oh, baby. Bye. Woo, woo, woo. Hope there's not car coming. <laughs> So, uh, where are you from? Uh, well, Austin, majority of my life. Yeah. I was born in Huntsville, Texas. And then I moved to Florida for about five years, and then my dad got really sick. Uh, so we came back to Central Texas to be closer to the family. And so we've been in Austin since I was five years old. I gotcha. Yeah, so there, this is pretty close to home for you now, then. Yeah, yep. For people who aren't familiar with the Texas Hill Country, scenically, what will they see? It's, it's gonna be rocky. There's gonna be a combination of limestone and granite. You're gonna see a lot of plants that you would typically associate with the desert. Uh, so yucca plants, prickly pear cactus. And then in the spring, you got these beautiful wildflowers that we're seeing on, on the ride today. Yeah. But uh, I think the wildflowers are worth mentioning. This, uh, this area is actually known for its wild uh, flower viewing. Are you familiar with the Willow City Loop? Yeah, the Willow City Loop is a little south of where we are right now. Okay, so I was gonna ask if this intersects with that at, at any point. It, it comes really close. Yeah, but we're in that same geographical area where yeah. that, that loop, I, I don't know if you know, is rated like one of the top 20 loops in the country uh, oh, wow. for, for cycling. I take issue with that because I think uh, if you've been there in the peak of wildflower season, it's like littered with people and cars, and I don't, I don't think they're looking for cyclists. Yeah. But it is really beautiful. 
It is really Unfortunately, deep. the secret got out. All right, we got our first river crossing here. That looks about 10 feet deep. Fast moving water. Turn around, don't drown. Oh, luckily my podcasting gear is in a waterproof thing. Oh no, I activated the squeaky bottom bracket with that river crossing. Now it's gonna be just a full podcast of my bottom bracket. Scrink, scrink, scrink. <laughs> Think about that. We're just getting started here. We're about two miles in probably. Yep. So what do we have to look forward to first here? It's been, I mean, at first we just popped out of the uh, Oxford campground and was on a busy road there for what, maybe a quarter of a mile or something. You duck off that to some pretty nice farm roads. Yeah, so the beginning of the route pops off of Oxford Ranch Campground and then, yeah, sends you to the Texas Overland route. You do have to ride about three quarters of a mile on a pretty busy highway, Texas 16. Of course, it was busier today because it's Memorial Day weekend, but yeah, and then it takes you off uh, a good 10 miles of the Texas Overland route, and then you got about four miles of a paved road that cars do you will see some cars on there but and what mile do we hit that at about that's around mile 12 or so okay and that's probably my least favorite part of this route you just gotta endure that to connect to the the good gravel one of those uh fast moving no shoulder type situations uh yes sir yeah. <laughs> i'm sure you're pretty familiar with those in east texas well it's yeah I guess worth noting for people who aren't as familiar with this area and might come and do the route from other areas. You know, I got to think about it like, Texas isn't really a destination bikepacking state, um, unless you consider, you know, Big Ben. You know, certainly people go to Big Ben. But, you know, a lot of people come and visit Austin because they got family here or for work or, you know, it's a very, it, you know, it's a, it's a big city that draws a lot of people in. And so, I can see this route like being pretty heavily used, you know, and uh, maybe by people who don't come from the area. So, you know, it's, I guess it's worth noting that, you know, kind of the whole, you know, premise behind this route and any route you'll find in Texas is uh, just a, a huge lack of public lands. In your article, it said there was 90%, it's like 95% uh, public or private land. I've heard it's as much as 97%. Yep. But anyway, you look at it, the best we can do in Texas is just string together whatever we can, you know? Yeah, my, my post, it did say 95%, and I, I think I either got it from an, an old listing or uh, maybe combined the, the military, like the federal land that they use for the military as well as the private or the public land. It's interesting because it's a misleading fact when you look at it by percentage base, because we are, we are in the bottom, what, like three states? But total acreage, we actually have like in the top 20, just because sta the state's so big. But majority of that is uh, is definitely Big Bend. Yeah, that's, you know, Big Bend region is 1.3 million acres. Yeah. So that's, I don't know where it fits in exactly. And then it's, it's more than half, for sure. And the public land I have seen in Texas, a lot of it, and Big Bend not included, same Houston National Forest or Davy Crockett. I assume Sabine is somewhat similar, but you know, there's private end holdings all throughout. It's actually pretty difficult to really get back country. 
Uh, again, excluding Big Ben. <laughs> Big Ben's like the the one saving grace for Texas bike packing or really outdoor public spaces for Texas. No, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it is really challenging to find. I mean, you can't even find backpacking really in Texas other than Big Ben. Yeah, yeah, but it's uh, it's definitely challenging to create a route that you know you're not going to see cars. You're not gonna be on somebody's private land that's not marked private um, and that doesn't want you on there. I've run into that issue just east of Austin, actually. I had a, a route from Lockhart to, to Palmetto State Park that I'm working on and ran into an issue with a, a private road that I was using that I didn't know was private. Oh, how'd you find out? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, um, a local bike shop, Cyclist, posted was one of the bike shops that did the mid-south route, route yeah yeah this year and they they used that same road and when people went out to practice the weekend before the, the owner was like hey this is a private road you can't be on this road but with ride with gps it's a i mean it's a very common road that people ride gravel on so it's got the red line on their heat map it's just marked private only from one one spot you have to be south heading north and typically you're north heading south has anyone tried to uh, holler at that landowner and get some access uh, russell from cyclist has tried to and uh i think they're still in conversations with him um and i didn't i didn't want to jut in because he had already initiated the conversation but i think yeah i think they're hung up a little bit about the liability if someone were to get hurt um would they be liable so these are the types of challenges we 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 face in texas and i've ridden in this area and it's really beautiful one thing i really like about it that we don't have where i live is here you don't see as many fences you know yeah. we're, we're riding along this is a county road right yep yeah most of the roads we're going to be on yeah i mean we've, we've been on this road for a few miles and i've only seen one car lots of trees lots of cows cactus and like you said, rocky outcroppings everywhere. Yep. And today, today is more, well, it's Memorial Day weekend and uh, the weather's looking pretty good. High of 80, low of 67. This time of the year in Texas, that's pretty good. No, we, we lucked out with weather. We've been getting dumped on with rain the past few weeks. The colors are vibrant. A little humidity in the air, but I mean, perf perfect temperatures for sure for late May. Oh, just when I said no fences, there's the fence. But I, that is part of the reason why I love this route so much. And just coming out a little west of Austin, it's got loose livestock everywhere. Yeah. You get cattle walking across the street. You get sometimes even sheep walking across the street. And everybody, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to jinx this, but everybody keeps their dogs locked up. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't have dogs chasing you, which Why? is awesome. Yeah, I was about to say my girlfriend did this route solo. And that was one of the questions I had for you was about the dogs. So she just got, she still has a, probably pretty well healed now, but when she did this route, it was her first uh, solo bikepacking trip. And she, had, she still had an open wound from her previous dog attack. She did it and had nothing but great things to say. 
I think her only disappointment was that she couldn't take a cow home with her. <laughs> she kept sending me pictures of baby cows, asking if she could bring them home. I don't know what the pet deposit is on a baby cow. But... <laughs> Probably pretty up there. But yeah, that's, that's another thing. If you get to be here during spring, that's cabin season. So get to see a lot of calves. What's your day job? Uh, I'm a general manager of a beverage company. I, I run the distribution of Clean Cause Yerba Mate. We sell a sparkling Yerba Mate. It's organic. It's a highly caffeinated tea from South America. Oh. Um, but the cool thing about Clean Cause is that 50% of our profits go to help support recovery from alcoholism and drug addiction. Oh, wow. How did, uh, did you gravitate to that naturally because of your past or did it was that happenstance? A little bit of both. There was a lot of luck involved. Uh, the founder started this company late 2014, early 2015, got into stores. And then I got sober early 2015 and my ex-girlfriend introduced me to the founder. I became the third employee and I've really been able to grow with the company. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, we just hit a huge milestone. We've granted 2,000 sober living scholarships representing uh, over a million dollars. So it's a pretty big moment for us, for sure. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. How many people are with the company now? I think we just passed 50. Wow, so yeah, you're all really growing. So how old are you? Uh, 29. So you got sober when you are 23? Yep. So of course you didn't start drinking until you are 21, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was a quick and hard fall. No. You, you turned into alcohol really, <laughs> really fast. <laughs> you fell in and out of grace real fast. <laughs> Sorry. No, it was, uh, it was a little bit longer than that. I started drinking pretty early on, late middle school. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, when I was about 12 years old. Oh, we got on some red dirt here? Yeah, red dirt. Oh yeah, this is pretty. But yeah, so I, I did quite a bit of drinking uh, for 10, 11 years, you know, somewhere around age 17. Alcohol just kind of stopped working, so I started using other harder drugs, cocaine, heroin. And I quit that right before I graduated and just continued drinking. Got into a pretty dark place up at Texas Tech Got arrested like five times before I turned 20. Man, so we're we're like, uh, we're brothers here. I was six times before 20, you were five before 21. Yeah. Not to brag, but I got you. I know. I was definitely given a couple breaks where I could have easily been in jail for sure. I got a big one too, my friend. I got a big one. So did you just hit bottom of the barrel? Uh, or what was the uh, catalyst for change? So the catalyst for change was uh, my family. I lost my father to cancer when I was seven. And so I've always been really close with my sister and my mom. They were both in Austin and I was in Lubbock and I had gotten to a pretty dark place using heroin again. And I got fired from my job, which was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I was always usually able to pull it together to work. I've kind of always relied on my work ethic to get me by. This mom and pop company really stuck their neck out multiple times for me and I just couldn't get my shit together. So were you one of these functioning heroin users that would go to work high and stuff? Not to call you out, but I mean, I fortunately never did heroin. I knew, I don't think I'd ever come back from it, to be honest. You know, some people can't function, right? You need it. 
my body definitely reacted to alcohol and heroin differently than most people. I used it when most people, they kind of nod off and become lazy, fall asleep on the couch. Yeah. And that was the only really time that I could be functional and be active. So I did use it, but it didn't last too long. It, it kind of takes over your life pretty quickly. And it's just a really expensive habit and I couldn't keep it up. I was just miserable. So my mom and sister noticed that and they asked, they came up to Lubbock and asked what was going on. And I kind of broke, I, I definitely broke down and told them everything. I went to detox the next day and I've been sober ever since. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks, man. How hard was it to go through the detox? Luckily, they've made, they made detoxing from opiates a whole lot easier with... Yeah, you use... Uh, Suboxone, methadone. Yeah. <clears throat> I use Suboxone. It was pretty smooth. I, I, I'd say I have a pretty easy sobriety story compared to most. Yeah. I think mine is easy, too. I just... Uh, I was in jail that sixth time. I was like, what are you doing, man? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, 20 years old. I think it was December 21st, something like that. It was like right before Christmas. So I was in jail with 50 other dudes on Christmas instead of home with my family. Jeez. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah. I hear of people getting like hooked on the methadone and stuff, so you didn't have an issue with that. I know you weren't on methadone, you were on the other one, but. Yeah, I, I would have been if I, if I tried to do it alone. I definitely was unsuccessful at quitting on my own like I, I did previously when I was in high school. Yeah. I was just a, a little too far gone this time. What's it like? Coming off of heroin? Yeah. Well, it's probably about the most miserable thing you can, you can go through by nobody's fault except your own. Yeah. So, you got restless legs, you got the cold sweats, but you feel really hot, but freezing at the exact same time. Your gastrointestinal is going through like the most intense battle because opiates kind of stop you up. And so now that you're getting that out of your system, you're starting to flow again, but it's the most uncomfortable, miserable place you can, you can be. And all you're thinking about is why did I do this to myself? But the only solution that you know is using again to make you well. That's, that's the thing, right? Is you get so sick that you just give in and then you go back to the drug because it's hard to get out of that, right? It's brutal. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. What keeps you sober? Like, how do I stay sober? Or? Yeah, I mean, like, what's your... Are you ever tempted or did it... Did it I mean, I, you know, my understanding is, right, like, addictive personalities don't go away. Yeah. Right? Um, so... There's a lot of work that you have to do to get off of substances, to, be, to become not chemically dependent and, and walk through those like, physical and biological temptations and urges and cravings. It's really just, it's wrapped around service, helping other alcoholics get sober. It's wrapped around alcoholics are creatures of habit and you just gotta fill your day up with healthy habits. You just, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, you just get to choose your habits now. So I fear we just catch people up real quick, let them know where we are, and uh, where, how, how far are we going? 29.2 miles. So uh, we're sitting at this uh, cemetery. 
Loyal Valley Cemetery. You didn't know this was on the route, huh? I did not. So I can't take credit, but um, someone commented on um, bikepacking.com on the on the route there. And he said, uh, if you're interested in some of the, you know, American Indian conflict that took place in that area, there's some great books. And oh yeah, by the way, there's this uh, grave site of this uh, kid that was captured by Indians. So we are actually in the cemetery on your route. So I guess people who are into that kind of stuff and want to learn more about some Texas history, it's right on your route, man. Yeah, and there's, uh, I've been told there's also a, a Native American history museum in uh, Fort Mason uh, that goes into a little bit about the conflict as well. I don't, I don't know too much about it, but. Well, that guy posted a couple books that were good for reading. Which books usually are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway, I, I, want, I meant to actually download one on Audible if they had them on Audible and listen on the way here and just got busy packing and forgot. But um, they got a little like Texas history plaque here for um, this kid who was captured. So I figured I'd just read it real quick. On May 16, 1870, two of the Lehman children, Herman and Willie, were captured by Apache Indians. Willie was released after five days and returned home, but Herman remained with the Apache and Comanche Indians for eight years. He was returned to his family by soldiers in 1878, but maintained his ties to Quanta Parker's Comanche family, into which he had been adopted for the remainder of his life. So... Kind of neat uh, little Texas history there. There's actually more information on Wikipedia that I was reading about. But they actually, earlier when I was telling you about that route that I created, highlighting some of this history, I think she was eight years old too. And they and the Parker clan was one of the first settlers in that area. It's just, it's like an hour from where I live. Anyway, so they were settling there and a raid party came in and, and took, took her. It was the girl who got... Uh, captured and she fully assimilated into the tribe eventually went on to marry one of the tribe's people gave birth to Quanta Parker who was the last like great Cherokee leader I guess or, or war I you know I, obviously I'm not very uh, smart with this kind of stuff but I've been trying to like make an effort to learn, you yeah, know, no, for sure. um, kind of like have a better understanding of the history that took place in the, in the places we're riding through. And so, yeah, there's a lot I don't know, but I do like to try to stop at these little places and maybe learn a little bit about the history along the way. No, absolutely. I, uh, I think it's important to, to learn the history of the land and I, I think it, it definitely adds value to the route and it brings more to your imagination of what it must have been like, you know, hundreds of year, years ago to go Yeah, you can almost, well, yeah, you can kind of picture it, especially through this terrain, man. It's beautiful. Actually, let's give a little uh, update so far. How would you describe the scenery over the last, oh gosh, I guess we stopped recording probably at mile five or so, so the last 25 miles? Yeah, so the terrain towards this section of the route, it really goes through some amazing granite outcroppings, a lot of elevation change for Texas, at least. And the flowers this time of year are just unreal. It's been raining a lot. You, you can tell everything's green. All the flowers are 
very vibrant and uh, it's probably the most beautiful time of year I've done this route. Definitely the hottest I've ever done this route. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's beautiful for sure. So I feel like it's worth also mentioning. I agree, by the way, with, with the beauty. I have to um, comment on that real quick. And even the busiest road, I have to also say, like the busy road that you were, the four-mile stretch that we were talking about earlier, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I, one car, I think, passed us in the whole four miles. Um, you know, so pretty lightly trafficked. So overall, man, uh, I've been really happy with it because one of the main things I look for is um, I like safety, but the other nice thing that comes with safety is there's just no cars so it's peaceful you can enjoy it you don't have to always be looking over your shoulder or whatever and this is certainly a, a route so far that like has really allowed you to just enjoy the scenery there's certainly lots of it we've seen deer we've seen i saw a snake uh we had tons of lizards lizards that's that's man lots of big old fat lizards man i love it and, more and grass... the flowers have been insane yeah and more grasshoppers than i've seen Probably in my entire life, like big monstrous <laughs> grasshoppers. I've never seen grasshoppers that big yeah. ever. Yeah, it's... they're huge. So yeah, they're doing well with the rain too, huh? Yeah. I guess those grasshoppers are on crack. So yeah, the heat. So we're here Memorial Day weekend, like like I mentioned, and so right coming up on June. And I was telling you off air that I think this is the last bike packing trip I'm doing in Texas for a little while. You know, for people who aren't aware of Texas, you just need to be aware of like the temperature is. Um, fortunately for us, like there was water on the route in terms of like water crossings. So, you know, if we got too overheated, I guess we could dump our head in or, or get some water for running low on water. But if it's dry, you know, what are the resources for water on this route? When it's dry, the, the resources are, are really just the store and the Lano River. And they're, they're basically at the same point in the route. Uh, to be safe, I, I would just plan on bringing all the water that you would need for each day ride. So um, whatever the temperature says and, and plan for more than that, probably one liter more. Because today we were counting on overcast and yeah. we each packed two liters and I'm already out. Plan for a, a full day ride. Maybe three liters should be sufficient for any Are you time out of water? Uh, yeah, I actually am out of water, but I'll be, I'll be fine. I got like a half of a half of a liter. Or a half of a, no, that's just a half a liter. Yeah. I've got a half of a half of a liter to spare. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, what do we have, uh, what do we got left? I mean, so, oh, and the other thing I wanted to mention is it's kind of been rolling, rolling terrain, mm -hmm. uh, nothing too extreme. Uh, none of the climbs have been hike-a-bikes by any stretch. No. You know, they're all very uh, climbable and none of them are too sustained, but just nice, nice climbing, nice descents, keeps it interesting, keeps that nice rolling terrain coming, you know. What do we got next coming up? Uh, so next we have Kaiserville Road. In the past, that's where Castell Grind starts. You, so it's it's a 10-mile descent to camp. Uh, that's what we're about to hit. But the Castell Grind usually starts on that 10 miles. So I've done this route in the past going up Kaiserville Road. And it's, it's, it's brutal. It's, I mean, it's a 10-mile, very sustained, steady climb. It's not anything like you would see in other parts of the western united states yeah. or even arkansas or the smokies but it's a decent climb so we've got a, a nice easy coast to camp uh probably stop at the general store grab a burger and oh, some barbecue not probably 100 yeah. percent. i didn't even pack food <laughs> <laughs> maybe catch some live music and uh and yeah sit on the, the lano river and set up camp yeah dude i'm looking forward to all the things you said downhill 
food and river and camp. Yep. All those things sound good. I like it so far, man. I'm digging it. I think you're going to get a lot of people out here riding it, but it's hot. Oh, and there's not a lot of trees. No, it's super exposed. Yeah, it's pretty exposed. I, I mean, you're going to be able to find little, uh, little trees to uh, get out of the sun, you know, mm -hmm. here and there, but um, it's not well canopied or anything like that. But, you know, we've taken a couple little breaks and we're taking one now underneath a tree. And oh my gosh, dude, it's like, it's crazy when you step out from underneath a tree. Yeah. It's like 20 degrees hotter instantly. Yeah. I mean, it, the route itself isn't too long. Um, so you can power through and you can start earlier to kind of beat the heat. We started a little later in the day. So I think we caught, the, yeah, the most harsh sun. But uh, yeah, I think maybe we'll leave a little earlier tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> but again, we thought it was going to be overcast and it's an exposed route. I've done this route in January. And even then it was, you know, 70, high of 75 degrees, but the sun, it, it took it out of you. For, it can take it out of you for sure. You know, tomorrow, won't we have that same 10 mile climb coming out? Uh, no, so it's the, the rest of the loop. So uh, we'll come out a different way. Okay, and then once so we'll we, continue on the loop. Yep, and then once we hit that little offshoot, we'll finish off the lollipop and then we'll start double backing. But our first but we'll still have to climb out i mean if we're going down to the river we'll still yeah have, but it, it's it, just not as a, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a nicer climb yeah it's like three different peaks so mm. it's like one small climb and then a descent and then another small climb and that descent we've actually climbed up quite a bit already mm. and so we're going down in the camp and so you you have to climb less i guess this is the high point I see on what the you're route saying. right right now, did you, uh, was that strategic whenever you were designing the route to lay it out this way? Uh, so the, the distances were the, the main factor. I wanted the first day to be the longest, and then the, the climb kind of lucked. It, it just worked out. It would have been a tough choice to say, all right, we're going to do the shorter day first, but end on a, end on a descent. I just wanted the, the longer day to be first. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I guess it turned out really well because... You're getting your longest day first, you're getting that descent at the end, and then day two, you're avoiding the climb. So, I mean, it kind of all, it all kind of worked out. Yeah. If you have the legs for it, like I, I know this for a lot of like road riders, this may not be the best route. They would be want, wanting some more distance. You could always take the shorter side of the lollipop the first night and then wrap around the north loop and that's an additional 31 miles. And then you could stop at camp and then come out the other side of the lollipop. So you'd have probably a 50 mile first day and then a 36 mile second day if you wanted a longer route and explore more gravel. You know, I've talked about this on our, the recent one I did with Ridewood GPS, the episode I did with them. It's like, I like to take a route and then, you know, maybe I add to it or change it or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, routes are great like starting points and sometimes they're just great the way they are but like on yours for example i saw uh, i remember looking and seeing enchanted rock state park was real yeah. close and i was like huh you know it'd be cool to like add an extra day and so i, I created a little route and actually what was your feedback on on that on that road i mean it's it's all paved it's all paved right mm -hmm. that's what it was that's what i thought i remember you saying so yeah i think it would be safe to ride but it's just it's all paved right and the other thing, getting into Enchanted Rock State Park is 
pretty hard to do. And they don't. So creating they, a route around Enchanted State Park isn't a good idea. So I'm not putting that out there as you should have done it this way. I'm just saying, I want to, as an example of when you pick, pull up a route and you're like, oh, what else is around, you know? Yeah. I mean, Enchanted Rock is beautiful, They but they're not keen on cyclists or dogs, really. And the, when I look for land that I want to explore, is you know, can I ride my bike there and or could I bring my dog there and take him off leash? And So when you say cyclists, you just mean off trail or on trail, I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do they not have any cycling trails out there? Mm -mm. Wow. Yeah, it's been many years. Last time my uh, first daughter was two years old, I think. So it's been nine years since I've been out there. It's been a minute. Yeah. I mean, it's it's beautiful out there. You can see the stars better than probably any place other than Big Bend in West Texas. But Yeah, the stars are worth it. And uh, you know uh, Enchanted Rock moans at night? I've never heard that. Yeah. So Enchanted Rock, uh, the Indians, if we're talking about the Indians, they, you know, worshipped it, right? They didn't know what it was. They thought it was some kind of god. But at night, um, it moans. And it's because the rock is cooling. So hmm. it all day long, it heats up. And then at night, and I don't remember exactly what, you know, it is that causes it. But it's been many years since I heard it. But, yeah, you can, I, I Googled it not too long ago. I mean, it was still a few years ago, but... I was telling someone and they were like skeptical. Yeah. Like Google it, it's there. And I was right. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of a lot of people don't know that. But I went there on a Boy Scout trip when I was younger. We were repelling and uh, that's one of the things that they taught us back then and just kind of stuck. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. We live in a weird, weird place, right? Yeah. <laughs> or an, in an interesting place and it's, it's fun to explore it. All right, well, I'm getting ready for a burger, man. Yeah, me too. What do you think? Sure. We got 10 miles downhill. We can get there in 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd probably say 35, 40. Yeah, I'm definitely ready for a burger. Burger and swimming in the Lano. Where do you got me here? So we're in camp. Where are we? Uh, we're at La Festa Campground. Can, let's, let's break that down. La Festa. Yeah, Life Festi. Life Festi. Yeah. Okay. Do we know where that comes from? Is so that's, uh, so Randy Life Festi, the owner of all this land, this is his, I believe it's his nephew's private property here, right on the Lana River. And uh, yeah, so they opened up a campground and Bobette primarily manages it. And she's a, a really sweet woman. She just opened up this side of the primitive camping for the bikepacking route this is my first time staying here since she opened it up and uh I, I i really like it here but um well what was neat right is that we know that bike packers have been coming here apparently they've all been good guests no one's caused any problems so good job bike packers good job represent the community well i i told her i said this community will be respectful they'll understand leave no trace They'll bring all their own stuff, you know, like they're not going to cause any trouble. And and she seemed to agree that so far everybody's been doing a good job. Yeah, it's a... Uh, so cookies for everybody. <laughs> cookies for everybody. <laughs> no, it's been awesome, the people that have reached out, that have done the, done the route so far. It's been one of the coolest things that I've been able to contribute to just in, in general in my life. And, and now I get to give back to a community and a hobby that has given me so much, so... Man, even uh, we ran into a couple other uh, bike packers, Kurt and, do you remember his name? 
uh, I, f- I forgot his name. Gosh, damn it. I did too. But <laughs> he was a very nice guy. And we got to catch up with them at the general store and chat with them for a little bit. But yeah, it was just cool. Like we showed up at the last campground where we parked to set off this morning and two other bikepackers are there to ride the route. And uh, then we actually get to the general store. There's like eight other cyclists there. Um, I don't know if they were on the route or not exactly what they were doing, but yeah, it's good to see. It's definitely like people are certainly responding to the route. They're using it. Yeah, it makes me really happy. And when we pulled up, we asked Bobette, you know, has, has business picked up at all? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, with a big smile on her face, she said it definitely has. So I'm again, just grateful to be able to give back. Man. And well, and then she opened up, like you said, this whole primitive area where we're camping right now. And it's, it's so to try to describe it, we're on the banks of the Lano river and it's like, I don't know, there's like a little granite outcropping like right in front of us with green grass everywhere and um, beautiful trees everywhere plenty of room for hammock campers mm-hmm. and then the sunset put on a hell of a show tonight still putting on a little show over there but yeah yeah it definitely lit up the route is good man it's just so beautiful i don't know how well we were able to articulate that while we were riding today but it's worth mentioning especially this time of year in the spring when the flowers are going and the birds are chirping and all the animals are out and uh man today like blue blue skies with huge white puffy clouds i mean you just couldn't paint a better picture of a a, a texas spring day right yeah no we lucked out i I wasn't prepared for it i didn't bring enough water for it it got a little sunburnt but as far (laughs) as beauty yeah we we lucked out and the roads were dry which was surprising yeah it was just it was a beautiful day I certainly enjoyed it. I mean, like for real, I've done a a fair share of riding in Texas and the most beautiful area of Texas, in my opinion, well, there's Texas is big, but one of the most beautiful places in Texas for me is certainly hill country. And for a lot of people, I mean, this is um, just iconic, beautiful Texas hill country out here. But yeah, there's been gravel routes and there's a lot of roads, but no one had put together a bikepacking route until you came along. And uh, I think it's worth, you know, giving you a little bit of credit. You said you had imposter syndrome earlier. And I'm like, I mean, you did this, you know, you you put in the time, you took the pictures, you had to submit it twice to bikepacking.com. They have high standards, you know, but I mean, you did it and now people are able to, to benefit from that. I mean, not only the cyclists that get to ride it, but Bobette that hosts this campground the, you know, the general store that got more traffic, get, gets a couple more dollars. I mean, it's cool, dude. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I yeah, it's, it's hard to take a whole lot of credit because it is it is somebody else's uh, race route and, um, you know, Castell Gravel Grind definitely yeah. pieced together some great gravel roads out here. And, uh, yeah, I, I really just looked on Google Maps and picked two <laughs> campgrounds um, and strung them together. But uh, I am I am really proud of, of doing that and taking the photos because it, it does take, you know, it, it doesn't take much to, to capture the, the beauty out here. But I, I am really proud of the, the route overall. And, you know, I think I did a, a decent job at giving everybody some highlights to look forward to and some must-knows and being as prepared as possible. It's a pretty straightforward route, though. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Very uh, beginner friendly, I'd say. With with it, and actually, um, uh, Kurt 
who we ran into earlier that we were just talking about. This is her second ever bikepacking trip. She just bought her bike two months ago. Um, she just went whole hog, full tilt all the way in it. So that's so cool. And uh, yeah, and she's she's out here doing it, having the time. I mean, they were grinning ear to ear. They said on the way here, they were just like, uh, what, falling all over themselves. We just couldn't get over the beauty. And they were just, they seemed to, yeah, truly be soaking it in. Yeah, pretty I've, cool. Yeah, I've heard I've heard really good things of, of people enjoying the route, and it, it it is awesome. It's cool to know other people are enjoying the route, and and if I didn't piece it together, then they wouldn't have found yeah. it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of like worth mentioning. Sometimes it maybe doesn't take a whole heck of a lot, you know. And I didn't invent any new roads whenever I've created any route or anything. I mean, the roads have been there. People have ridden them many, many times. I didn't discover anything, but. A lot of times it's just, yeah, putting it together, like in Texas, where it's hard to find uh, campsites, public land, all these things that we were talking about. I mean, you just pieced it together and put all the information out there. So anybody, I mean, I didn't plant much, you know, I like, I hopped on bikepacking.com yesterday and <laughs> like, okay, what do I need to know? Yeah, okay. And uh, I sent you a text or two and, you know, off we go, you know. Yep. And that's kind of the beauty of, of a route is it doesn't have to always be this epic thing. And especially in Texas, actually, I guess uh, maybe you want to you talk about the because I didn't know this. And I learned this a, a little while ago that I guess my Sam Houston tour route is what opened up your idea to actually do this or something like that. It was, um, it had a lot, a lot to do with your Sam Houston route. I did think bikepacking was supposed to be this multi-day journey that seemed inaccessible to a guy like me um, in Austin, Texas. And that route came out and I was like, holy shit, man, this guy's doing it right down the road, you know, uh, only three hours from me, I should be able to do something like that here. And I, I went on ride with GPS. I, I searched for gravel rides. I just did keyword gravel with a, a big radius around Austin, Texas. I yeah. found the Castell gravel grind. Uh, I looked for campsites around that area. I found found the what I thought was the Lefesti campground at the time. And then I, I learned from the owner that it's Lefesti. Yeah, and then I came out here and I did the two north and south routes and tried to post it to bikepacking.com with iPhone photos. <laughs> Didn't hear anything back from them. Um, and then, yeah, and then uh, the, the pandemic hit, and the, the route wasn't, wasn't created correctly. Like, it was, it was two loops with the campground in the middle, and it wasn't really a real bikepacking route. So there was, other than bad photos, there was a lot of other reasons why, yeah. why they didn't uh, reach back out. And then I got into photography in right when the pandemic hit of March 2020. And one of the main motivations was to be able to share what I was seeing out on these, these gravel rides because I, I just love the country out here. Uh, you see loose livestock. Um, you get to see beautiful sunrises, sunsets, um, and just long, windy gravel roads. Um, so I started to learn more about photography and then came back out the next year and ran the same route took photos, posted it again, and it got accepted. And uh, <laughs> so that, um, the Sam Houston restaurant tour ignited pretty much my, my whole journey through bikepacking. Your whole journey through bikepacking or just like creating this route? Through bikepacking. That time that I came out here was my first time uh, bikepacking. Okay. So like scattering out the route and all mm -hmm. that. Okay. Interesting. 
So obviously you were interested in bikepacking, you were following it already, and then you saw the route and you're like, wait a second, we could maybe do, you know, just started looking around and see what you could find? Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I knew about bikepacking through, yeah, a, a few other mountain biking, because I, mountain biking outlets, because that was all I was doing. I was pretty much just only mountain biking. And you're uh, one of those. I, I was one no, of those, yeah. I was too. And uh, I still mountain bike sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I saw the, the, the restaurant tour, and uh, I also took like three really big falls mountain biking, jumping, and trying to learn to jump better. So I wanted to get into a different area of cycling. I still loved it, but I wasn't able to progress the way that I wanted to in mountain biking. Um, and then, yeah, the Sam Houston restaurant tour came out, and I came out here, and I just basically I, I wanted like a a beginner friendly uh, route. So I parked my car, and I just didn't touch it the rest of the weekend. So I acted like I was backpacking, so I, or bike packing. So I would I did one route, and then came and camped back at the camp spot, and then did the next route, hmm. and then came back. And so, in case something did go south, and I, I didn't, because I was a completely beginner, and I was yeah. out here by myself. So in case something did go south, I would have. My, my car to be able to get out but did you have any like camping experiences stuff like that before that uh no <laughs> like what was the learning curve for you it seems like a pretty short window from the time like you kind of like oh, mountain biking oh, this came on the market well, I mean, I have... next thing you know you're like planning routes <laughs> you're camping yeah <laughs> it's like... i had i had car camping experience so i camped quite a few times um but nothing you know, with light, like small back backpacking setups. So I, I knew the the general gist. I, I I knew how to get around. But I, other than that, I just I YouTubed a lot of videos. And I, yeah, I was gonna ask what what how did you learn how to bike pack? What was your steps? And and it sounds like you came out here solo the first time. So it doesn't sound like you had a, a friend group necessarily that was like educating you. Kind of self taught, huh? Yeah, I <laughs> I typically don't like to ask for help. So I'll learn through YouTube videos what I need to know and kind of obsess on that until I feel prepared enough to try something. And then I try it, and then I learn from my own mistakes and kind of course correct. Yeah. So how much course correction have you had to do since uh, that first time whenever you started? Quite a bit because my kind of my passion of photography, it wasn't there during the first time that I tried. So I had a, a very different setup as well as uh, I didn't have a sleeping bag that was rated for the, <laughs> the, the types of nights that I was having. I, I underestimated the humidity off of the, the Lano River. Even when it was only supposed to get down to 39 degrees, I thought a you 40-degree know, quilt was, would be enough, and it, it wasn't. Uh, it froze, froze my ass off. <laughs> yeah, experiential learning. Yeah, I've learned what food that I like, what kind of snacks that I like, the eating intervals that I need to follow so i don't crash yeah overall just i'm still very much beginner so i'm still learning yeah, yeah. well that, yeah that's something i wanted to kind of touch on is, is uh i mean anybody can do something this community is like so fresh in so many ways that there's a lot of opportunities for i don't yeah this community is just growing so fast and there's a lot of people that like kurt that we saw today who's like just getting into it 
you know, not everything has to be like an epic route, you know, a, a route built by a first timer that would be attractive to other first timers makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. you know, rather than I've been on a um, Cass Gilbert route that was rated as like super duper easy. And I got there and I'm like coming from Texas at no elevation and, you know, whatever other excuse I want to throw out there. But I'm like, bro, this is not like a, an easy for for like a weekend warrior or something, yeah. you know? So you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, it, it, it kind of, it makes sense that um, you kind of maybe are even in a better position to create a route that would be attractive in that way, right? And then that's the way you've touted the route is kind of, I mean, you describe it as being, I don't know exactly, but relatively laid back, fairly easy. Yep. Yeah. It's not a hard route, and it, it is difficult to find really challenging routes in Texas, or at least that have majority gravel roads. Yeah, it's it's a very laid-back route, and I think anybody could come and do this if they had enough water. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, temperature and water are consideration, but I think they always are. Those kind of kind of go without saying, but I think in Texas, maybe we emphasize it a little bit more. Today was pretty sweet. It's great, actually. Um, the sun was a little dialed up more than I like. Uh, I'm going to talk to the route creator about that off air. But, <laughs> uh, so d- tell me a little bit about tomorrow. Tomorrow's very much similar to, to today. However, it, it's a little shorter. Um, we finish uh, the south loop. Uh, so we'll be on roughly 15 to 18 miles of new roads. And then we start doubling back towards the end of the the lollipop back to Oxford Ranch. So um, it's, you got a little stretch of road from, that goes past the general store where typically you would stop for for dinner, where we stopped tonight. Um, So you go past there and then back up another um, gravel road. And it's it's pretty much all gravel until you get to that turnoff where that four mile stretch of road. Nice. Would you say is it, is, is it as scenic as, as day one? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So you're getting the scenery and it's a little easier. Yeah. Instead of a big elevation gain, it's more like three separate little peaks. Sweet. Well, I'm looking forward to it. What time are we rolling out? 9.05. <laughs> yeah. 9.05. Nine. As long as it's before 10. <laughs> How long do you think it'll take us? Uh, wonder what time we'll get done tomorrow. I think four hours is a, is a good bet uh, if we're going to be stopping and taking photos. and Yeah. And the general store won't be open yet, huh? Uh, Not till 10, so we'd have to. But I brought, bre- I brought breakfast. Yeah. All right. So it's worth noting the Castell Grind store, I think most people are probably going to utilize it because it's, it's like part of the route. Do the uh, the burgers at the Castell Grind store, uh, general store, are freaking good. Yeah, they're they're really good. The buns that they use are amazing. Yeah, like it's a it's a damn good burger. I don't know what else they had there that was an option, but um, I'm going to tell you right now: if you are a carnivore that enjoys a hamburger, that's one to put on your plate right there, and then put it in your belly after your mouth, of course. Tell me about your alcoholism while I sit here and sip on some whiskey. I'd love to. <laughs> um, like the whole story or just kind of... Let's see. How it, how it pertains to cycling. 
the question I didn't ask earlier that I, w- I wanted to know is um, when did it all begin and why? At some point, it started to become just like fun and stuff, and it became, I'm guessing, an unhealthy chase of just a substance. Yeah, you bet. I uh, I started drinking early on, probably 12 years old. You know, I, I, I grew up pretty pretty privileged. I lost my father to cancer when I was seven, and that kind of rippled and affected other areas of my life. Um, you know, I didn't really get along with my stepdad growing up. And when I found alcohol, I didn't really have to deal with anything else. I could just be drunk. Yeah, when, when most people drink, um, they feel a little dizzy and feel out of control. But I, I didn't. It didn't affect me that way. Uh, alcohol affects me differently. I felt in control, and I felt like I could do anything. And for one time, the only time in my life, I felt like I didn't care about anybody else's opinion uh, of myself. So what's that like for you now, right? I mean, you don't drink alcohol, so is that imbalance or whatever still, like... Because some, something was, like, wasn't right, and then alcohol seemed to, like, fix it for you, you know? Yep. Yeah, so I, it definitely had to be replaced with something else. I learned that a lot of my anxiety came from not telling the truth. When I got sober, I started telling the truth. A lot of my uh, relationships didn't really work out because I was extremely selfish. When I became sober, I learned to put other people first, and I learned to be of service and help other alcoholics struggling and helping them get sober. And that became my new way to feel self-worth. How quickly after, uh, oh, you were talking about that earlier, actually. You said, like, it was, like, eight days. You were, like, still in rehab, and you were able to, like, almost immediately use what you had learned to the benefit of uh, somebody else, and kind of that was the catalyst that that really, I guess, even till today, it still motivates you, huh? You know, I, I had to go to a, a, a detox facility and inpatient treatment facility as well. In that facility, I was able to help others you know, I, I really wanted to get better. I at first only wanted to quit using heroin, and I refused to give up alcohol. And it may, it within like four days of me being there, it became very clear that I didn't view alcohol like normal people did, and I couldn't drink successfully. <clears throat> when I learned that, and when I learned other things that helped me get over some anger that I had around losing my father, I was able to you know, transfer that same knowledge to other people that were going through things. And I saw their reaction and I saw that it helped them. And I, I realized for the first time in my life that I could be of service to others and that I had purpose. And I know that may sound a little odd to, to somebody to not feel like they have purpose, but alcohol and partying and drugs were my only sort of identity. It's how I viewed myself. It's how I thought others viewed me. And it's not how my family viewed me, but it's how I thought everybody viewed me. Yeah. I didn't think I was going to be useful to the world without alcohol and drugs. And that lie got crushed pretty pretty quick. And I've been chasing that feeling ever since. What kind of uh, like advice and stuff are you, were you like passing on that was having an impact? Uh, in this 12-step program that I'm a member of, you have to take 
moral inventory of yourself. So you have to go over you know, all your past relationships, any resentments that you may have, any fears that you have. And one of my biggest resentments that I, I was kind of embarrassed of having was I, I was resentful at my father for, for leaving. You know, he, he, he died of cancer. He had, no, he had no choice. I still felt like he left me. You're supposed to find your part in this resentment. How did you play a role? Typically with resentments, you've, you've either stepped on the toes of others or you've put yourself in a position to be harmed. Mm. And you're supposed to find those reasons to help you move past it and provide empathy for the other person. And I couldn't, I was, I was lost. I was lost about this one. I couldn't find my part. And my sponsor just looked at me and goes, man, the only part that you played is still harboring this resentment. And that, uh, that really shook me. It, I was like, all I have to do is let go of this anger. And, uh, and I, I, it just, it literally fell off me. And I've been able to help young men and even older men that have had the same resentments about fathers that have walked out on them, about fathers that have passed away with even my sister. You know, I've been able to help people that have had similar resentments and say, hey, even though you didn't play a part in this, it's still your responsibility to let this go because it's making, it's not productive to your life. And just being able to share that with other people is just, it's so powerful. And to be able to see a light bulb come on in somebody's eyes, it's just, it's unreal. What was it about holding on to that that made you feel like you needed to drink or, you know, do drugs and, and all that? Like make that connection of like, why was that the piece that allowed the healing to begin? So that's a great question. I don't know the complexity of it, but the, the simplest thing that I, that I can find is I didn't think that I was grieving my dad if I had a happy life. Like, I didn't think I was grieving uh-huh. properly if I was able to be happy. And mm-hmm. I would thought that when you have something that traumatic happen to you, you're just, you're supposed to be sad and you're supposed to be angry. And, yeah. and, and I've, I didn't feel comfortable being sad. And the way that I feel sad and feel fear is I get angry. And that's, that's who I presented to, to the world because I was so afraid of people knowing that I was afraid. Mm. Um, and so I, I was angry all the time because I didn't think that moving on would celebrate my father. You know, I thought that I was doing him. Yeah. It's service. almost like you have this moral obligation to suffer and like carry that, you know, black cloak or, you know, it's like, you know, in some cultures, people dress in black for a period of time and it varies in cultures and stuff. But, you know, it's this thing. It's like, you know, we should we should spend time mourning and, and paying respect and stuff. And so I, I think there it's almost like a survivor's guilt, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way to be tough to live with that. And, and especially you were how old? Eight? I was seven when he seven. passed. Seven is an extremely, those those young years are just so, I'm not a child psychologist, but I have children, so I've read some books and stuff about it. And it's like, you're up until five, you have so much uh, influence on, on your children. I mean, it's kind of like when you have the most opportunity to, to do, the mo- have the most Im- impact, I think, in their lives. That's what I've read. I can imagine that, you know, getting to be the age of like seven or eight is when you really start to probably like look up to your father, you know, and start to develop those like, oh, this is who I want to be when I grow up. And God, and then he's gone. And it's like, well, who do I want to grow up and be like now, you know, and like, how am I going to celebrate his life by like 
living this awesome life and he's just dead. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just trying to relate. No, you touched on something really key. I I didn't have positive role models. I, I had my stepfather, which I'm not saying he wasn't a positive role model, but I just refused to put him on that pedestal because of the the replacement or whatever an immature kid feels when they're you know they're a new dad is supposed to come in so i I started idolizing probably the the wrong type of people you know i I idolized a lot of partiers a lot of drunks the jim morrisons frank sinatra george jones ray charles like the the people that drank a lot and yeah i I just I, i thought that that's how a man's supposed to act yeah yeah, you you pick some maybe not the best role models to. <laughs> to I mean, I, I, lots of people do it though. It's yeah. like oh, you look at some people and you're like, man, they're wildly successful. I mean, Christopher Hitchens is someone who I've always looked up to. I think he passed away though, right? Yeah, he he died. Uh, do you know who he is? Uh, he's a brilliant guy, excellent debater. Spent most of his time debating religious zealots and stuff like mm. you you know there'd be auditoriums full of people and be him and some like you know priest or something you know debating some like high level religious stuff and anyway when i was going through my period of like leaving mormonism and trying to like understand the spiritual world world a little bit better i was introduced to him or i introduced myself to him i i should say brilliant man eloquent sharp thinker, quick on his feet, so witty. So you just don't want to go into a battle of words with this man, you know, like it's just, it's not a good idea. And uh, complete belligerent alcoholic and didn't try to hide it or, you know, and I mean, there's lots of examples like that. And so sometimes I think it can be a blurred line of of it. And, and maybe that, and actually maybe that kind of speaks to and segues into like a question I wanted to ask you is if, I know from talking to you today that this is this is something you're passionate about and you're continuing to be involved in. So, you know, I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts and, and maybe you have some, maybe you don't, about how do you identify when you have a problem versus when you can handle your shit or whatever yep. we want to call it, right? Is there is there a is there a line in the sand or, or? uh so there's not I mean it's really up to the person. So no other person can, can tell yeah. somebody else that they have a problem. Um, and when it's around alcohol, there is a pretty easy way to do it. And it's just a, a question. When you control your drinking, are you having fun? And when you are having fun, can you control your drinking? I'm thinking through that one. When you're having fun, can you control your drinking? I don't understand. So... A lot of alcoholics, I would say most alcoholics, when they're having fun, they can't control. Like, it's not fun to control your drinking because oh. you physically have to control. If you're an alcoholic that's progressed to a point where they need abstinence in, in, a, in a life of recovery, you, if you're controlling your, your drinking, you're not having fun. You're, I, I understand. You're depriving yourself of the thing that makes you happy. So you're not having a good time. You're, mm-hmm. that, that's, Yeah. Say that one more time. Yeah. So it's. Uh, I'm so processing it. Yeah. I'm slow. I'm a slow learner. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's if you're having fun, can you control your drinking? And if you're controlling your drinking, are you having fun? Now let's define control your drinking. Yep. You start. Okay. 
I mean, controlled drinking is where you're not getting blackout drunk at the end of the night and you're not doing things that you're embarrassed about when you wake up in the next morning. Okay. You know, I, I was telling you, I don't, I don't have a, um, well, I do have an addictive personality and I don't have probably the best relationship. I don't, I don't know. It's complicated, right? And that's why I'm yeah. kind of curious. Uh, I do, what I started doing is I do sober or dry January every year and uh, I've only done it two years. But the reason I started it in the beginning is because I do have an addictive personality, because I do uh, do have a history with drug abuse and all kinds of stuff. I have, you know, it's an interesting line, right? It's like there's a lot of drugs and things that I won't do. Um, I do drink and... Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, you know, I, I do have this like weird uh, for my, and I, it's my own thing, right? It's like, this is my line. I know what I can and I can't do, Yeah. but I also know, and I have to be honest with myself that, you know, like that year, for example, I'm like, dude, you're drinking a lot, like a lot. You know, I wasn't doing anything like, I mean, you know, you're taking care of all your stuff. I'm not abusing anybody. I'm not, you know, I'm not acting. I, I'm not one of these people who gets drunk and like flies off the handle and yeah. gets black. You know, so in that way, in that way, I think, you know, okay, it's all right, you yeah. know, but I'm like, oh, well, you're drinking a lot. And so for me, like my, what I do is I'm like, okay, well, you got to test yourself. Yep. You know, like I just cold turkey, whatever, you know, just no drinking for 30 days. And it wasn't that hard. You know, I was like, yeah. I like drinking. I do. I mean, I enjoy it, but it wasn't hard. And I did it again this year. I'm like, okay, not that big of a deal. So I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Is that a... Yeah, I, I mean, again, I, nobody can speak on anybody well, sure, else's I'm, program. But it, it, from what it sounds like, I wouldn't say that you have an issue with alcohol. Like, because if you're able to draw a line in the sand and not cross it, you're light years ahead of most alcoholics. What brings people to, to the point of needing recovery is they keep drawing lines in the sand and they keep crossing them. So they have to adjust their lines in the sand. Yeah. And so, like, if you want to get technical about it, there's three components to alcoholism. There's, there's I would love to hear it, actually. Yeah, so there's, there's one, and this is kind of, this is old school, um, descriptions of it but there's the mental obsession which you would compare to at a mexican restaurant eating one chip so you you only eat one chip and then what are you thinking about the rest of the time chips other chips yeah so that's that's the mental obsession alcoholics if they have one drop of alcohol or no alcohol all they're thinking about is their next drink and then two is the physical allergy once you put alcohol in your body you your body responds differently so when most people get dizzy when they've had enough, when most people feel a little out of control and want to stop, alcoholics don't have that. They feel in control. They feel like super a superhero, and they want to keep going. Okay. And then the interesting. So, so literally, the biology in in your body when it consumes alcohol and you get quote unquote drunk, you feel that you're in more control and all this. Are you? Do you, are you more functional? Well, so, I mean, it's not Not like, now, obviously, but at that time. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's all based on, on tolerance. So alcohol just stopped working for me. So it, it would, 
you would find this sweet spot. And when you're a new drinker, the sweet spot's huge, you know, because you, yeah. your, your tolerance hasn't adjusted. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, and this is my experience, I, I'm only speaking on my experience, all of a sudden you're miserable trying to get to that sweet spot and then all of a sudden you're blackout and you're and like it's like your body is not processing alcohol the way that it used to because your tolerance is so skewed yeah and so the only way you can get unmiserable is complete oblivion and so you're essentially at some point you just lose the sweet spot altogether yeah you just go right past it yeah <laughs> so you go from like maybe feeling like in control and like and then everything just like blacks out yep wow yeah. okay and but Alcohol, I think, is a very dangerous drug, um, and I think we don't treat it with the reverence and the the care that we should. You know, I mean, we were talking earlier. I mean, drugs should probably be legal, and maybe, yep. I mean, maybe you know, I don't think alcohol should be legal. I think grown people should be able to make those choices for Absolutely. themselves. Yeah. But <laughs> the fact that alcohol is legal, and you know, weed and psilocybin and LSD and, you know, in some places are all like, you know, class one drugs and all this stuff. It's just crazy. Yeah, it's unreal. We, I think we'd be a lot better country if we taxed all drugs, made them all legal and put all that money into treatment for the people that can't use those drugs successfully. Resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the way you said it earlier. You said, um, or actually, maybe I was listening to the mayor of Austin on a podcast. He said, yeah, because he was talking about the homeless population. Hmm. And I don't remember his exact program, program, but essentially, you know, it's like, okay, well, now we have money to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can complain about drugs and you have this huge war on drugs or whatever. Or like, I don't know. Yeah. Make it legal. Tax the shit out of yep. it. People that want drugs are going to get them. Yep. Uh, people that want to be alcoholics, they can do that. You know, I mean, we're not stopping anybody from, from doing those things. So, yeah. I mean, it's just so painfully obvious. It's it's, yeah. it's crazy. I think what scares most people, it, it would get darker. It, it would be probably five to ten years of, like, a growing pains. Um, but the end goal would be better, for sure. Um, but, yeah, there, there would be quite a few growing pains. I, what, I would what kind of growing pains would you foresee? An uptick in all kinds of drug use and yeah. abuse and, you know, even um, overdosing and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But maybe, maybe, but, you know, again, if we had the, the money to educate people, yeah, yeah. we had the money to research the drugs and maybe understand delivering mechanisms better, maybe, you know, limiting the amount people can buy. I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but I'm just saying that we don't know. I think education is huge, right? Like when I was 14 and I started doing drugs in 1994, there wasn't the internet in my house. Uh, there wasn't drugs ink, drug ink on Discovery Channel or whatever that was educating you about how these drugs are made, who's making it across the seas, like what kid is doing it. And I mean, just like, you know, and then the chemicals that are in it, like the crazy products that you're putting into your body willingly and like trusting that this drug dealer did it the right way. I mean, the whole thing is crazy, right? Yeah. So I feel like if I had a, a greater understanding of that going into it as a 14-year-old kid, maybe I wouldn't have taken that cap full of GHB horse tranquilizer or whatever. <laughs> thing, you know? But I didn't know. I was like, hey, everybody's doing it, you yeah. know? And so you just do it. Yeah. So I don't know how much education would, would make a difference, but 
I guess a combination of education and and then uh, you know you were talking about you know methadone and treatment centers and then you know social workers or care workers are able to like work with you through your stuff and that seems like what it takes actually why don't you t- I mean so this is something you're actively involved in how effective is the treatment process for people uh, well I, there's a lot of variations depending on you know what type of treatment sure I mean overall. It's less than fifty percent. I, I don't know ex- exact figure, but yeah. it's not, it's not that successful. Well, but, less than fifty percent, like forty five percent, maybe. Yeah, I would say I would say thirty to thirty to forty or something like that. Not terrible. Yeah, and Pretty. I I could be wrong about that figure, but I I do know that it is a very complex problem, and everybody's different, and they need to be treated differently. And a lot of times, people go to treatment before they're actually ready to get sober or before they're uh, ready to address the problem. And then some people go to treatment that, you know, don't have, they may just be struggling with other mental illnesses and they're self-medicating with substances. So it's a very complex issue. So I'm not sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're going to have all kinds of people that come in and yeah, maybe they have mental problems and they, maybe they don't have an alcohol problem. Maybe you fix your mental problem, then Mm -hmm. the alcohol goes away. And so... Yeah, I, I can see that can be a little bit complicated. But let me ask you this question then. Like, what advice do you give to people who are, I don't know, maybe they have their own concerns or they don't know, you know, a good path forward? I mean, um, there's a lot of good information on how to do drugs and a lot of places to get them. But I'm genuinely curious to have this conversation with you because it's an area that while I drink a lot, I know a lot of people that drink or whatever. It's like, I don't know much about when do you know if you have a problem? What do you do if you do have a problem? You know, I mean, just some like basic information. Like, I don't even know. Yeah. I mean, so advice, I guess, would be what I tell people that are that are struggling or that have questions or concerns um, about their own path is I, I talk about when you're having fun, can you control it? And when you control it, are you having fun? I ask him that question. And then I, I also show them a list of, you know, they, they call them spiritual bedevilments, but it, it's describing a spiritual malady. So like the, basically a, an illness of the spirit. That's the third part of alcoholism. It's where you feel useless to others and that uh, you're depressed. It's basically de- depression in a nutshell, based on how you view yourself in the world. Do you think of yourself highly? Yeah, th- there's a there's a list of spiritual bedevilments, and I ask, are you feeling any of these? And if they say yes, then I I, I say you may be struggling with uh, alcoholism. You may have to come to a meeting, and I, I I offer to take somebody to a meeting if they're the same sex and if they're a woman, then I put them in touch with a, a woman in recovery. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah. I'm, I'm, ho- I'm hoping that's like a, a, a policy for the program or is that just your own personal policy? It's very common knowledge. I'm sure there's bad apples that abuse it, but no, it's, that's common knowledge. Yeah. Sure. You don't want to take advantage. Of, I mean, someone going through that is probably in a vulnerable position. Yeah. And then anybody trying to do that is not, is a, a sick person for sure. So you shouldn't be asking them for advice in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah. <laughs> what has your recovery been like? I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but like, you know, after you get out of the treatment center in your home, 
Like, has it been pretty easy for you to stay sober or was it like harder in the beginning and now you've built up some, some good resistance or whatnot? To be fair, I've had a a really easy sobriety. I've had, uh, my family's full and utmost support. Um, my grandma, uh, is over 40 years sober. So she kind of blazed the trail in our, our family with recovery. I listen really well. I, I have a sponsor that I love dearly and I respect him and he calls me on my shit and uh, and I listen to him so I, even I, to his days calling you on your shit yeah yeah what kind of shit would he call you on what are you doing let's see any resentment that I have he's there to point out my part if it's if it's unclear to me so talk to me about this relationship better than like what what is that relationship like y'all talk once a week you go to coffee like what? What is that relationship like? So at at the very beginning, it's it's very involved. You know, you're meeting in person one time a week, sometimes more, depending on how quickly you want to get through the steps. You're going over the step work, and then afterwards, it. Uh, you know, my sponsor lives in in Utah, so we talk on the phone weekly. But you know, my sponsees, I, I still meet with them. I try to meet with them once a week. But people have busy lives. People have different schedules. People are okay with different setup so it's you know as long as you are communicative and you stick with a plan and uphold your commitments because that's that's the biggest thing is just upholding your commitments so if you commit to one time a week then that's what you what you do yeah it's easier to feel good about yourself when you make and uphold commitments right yeah it's a little thing it's like a little thing you can do to just it's integrity man i it's yeah. so it's so important and it's uh sorry i didn't catch the word you use but people that you you uh mentor or oh sponsors uh, sponsor yeah, yeah I, j- I just have one right now okay one yeah i've had uh multiple over the years um yeah yeah quite a few um but yeah just one right now i have to assume that you've had some that haven't towed the line and have had relapses and absolutely is it pretty heartbreaking to uh I mean, I would assume as long as they're still coming back and they're working through it, I mean, people make mistakes, but it's like, keep coming back. But I also think that I'm guessing some of them are just like, fuck this. You know? Yeah, no, a- absolutely. I, at least for me, I can't speak for everybody, but I know that no person could have gotten me sober. It had to be me. Hmm. If I know that about myself, then I'm very clear that I'm not the one getting anybody else sober. Yeah, It's just me taking them through the work. So if they choose not to do it of course i'll be sad for the person and and wish them luck while they're out there to come back quickly and without too much damage but no i i I don't tend to get too beat up about it yeah that's good yeah i mean we were talking about that earlier too no one can no one can really do it for you Mm because the doing at least for me was in between my ears i had to decide yeah you know and and i had to reach rock bottom and I had to look around and be like, what the fuck are you doing here, man? Like, how did you get here? You know, you take an inventory, take Mm -hmm. an inventory. You say, with all the opportunities I had in life, with every, you know, with my good family, you know, I had not a perfect life, but every opportunity to exceed. I had a loving family that provided for me and gave me a good home and a stable foundation. I could have done anything I wanted to do. But, you know, I, I mean, I guess since we're talking about it, I think the reason, you know, for me, why I went to drugs is is twofold. One, 
I, I was rebelling against Mormonism. And, you know, at a young age, it was like boring. It's like watching paint dry. Just, you know, take someone like me who wants to be wild and free and always on the go and try to stick them in a box for 10 hours, not 10 hours, three hours a, a, a Sunday. And, and I don't know, sing songs and stuff. It's like, and listen to people talk. Like, no, man, I, I just, it didn't resonate with me. But the other thing that they don't do is they don't educate you. You know, they don't, all they teach you is that God is going to punish you mm-hmm. if you do X, Y, or Z, but not, you know, not like, oh, well, there could be health complications. You could get addicted. You could, you know, OD. You could, you know, all these, I didn't know. Yeah. I was completely ignorant to any of that stuff. So, I mean, whenever people started doing it, I'm like, yeah, I mean, they said it was wrong, but like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it, it seems fine, <laughs> and and that was it. It w- it wasn't like this huge rebellion or anything. And I just started having fun. I was like, this is way more fun mm-hmm. than you know all this other stuff. And uh, and that that was kind of what it was. I was just kind of enjoying it. But after a while, with anything like that, I think if you keep doing it long enough, it it, it does start to become about the hit or you know spending your day pawn shop, like I pawn shop guitars so I could go buy drugs and mm-hmm. all, you know, I still never got those guitars back. I'm still bitter about it, but you know, those are the things like you start doing, you start prioritizing, uh, the drug and the high over the friendships, over having any type of meaningful life. Like, it's like you said, it becomes your identity, Yep. but you had said changing habits. Is that right? Yes. Hit me with that one again. Uh, this is kind of my own insight. This is not my own experience. So if somebody's looking at, at a book, it's not going to be anywhere. But um, alcoholics are creatures of habit. And you're going to either have to build healthy habits or unhealthy habits. And the, the only difference between a person using and a person in recovery is now you have the choice to choose what habits you, you fill your day with. And and hopefully you, you fill the majority with healthy habits that are service to others. Yeah, that, that that's really all recovery is, is you get to choose the habits that, that you build. Yeah, that one stood out to me big time because that's what occurred to me is, is I, I'm still a, an addict. I'm still addicted to bikepacking or addicted to, you know, whatever it is I'm doing. But it, it's taking those behaviors that you've learned and those things that you know about yourself and applying them in just healthier ways. Like, um, and you're a great example of that. I don't know how much we've talked about it on air, but like, I mean, you just started bikepacking. You just like all within the last year started like bikepacking and photography I'll share this one story. Like, so earlier we were, we were talking about photography. I, I told you what camera I, I had, like a couple cameras back. And uh, I even like said the name wrong. And you're like, oh, that's a one and three fourths. Da, 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 da. I don't even know what you said. <laughs> and I, I'm like, how do you know that? You know, like how in a, in a year do you know about some old obscure camera <laughs> That I butchered the name on, and you know more about it than I do, you know? <laughs> I am really passionate about the things that light my fire. I, I, I don't I don't really know what else I light my fire's corny. Um, <laughs> Come on, baby, light yeah, my that's, fire. That's really corny. Um, <laughs> talking about Jim Morrison, and that, like, that was his least favorite song. <laughs> was it really? <laughs> yeah, because he didn't write it. But, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, but... Uh, 
Yeah, the things that, you, that you're uh, impassioned about. Yeah, so I, I get really obsessed with the things that I'm passionate about, and, and cycling is one of those things, and photography became one of those things. It's funny because there's a decade in my life where I don't have any pictures taken of me because I, I don't, I didn't like photos, and then uh, I got into taking photos, and for the first time in my life, I found it easy to tell stories because all I had to do was capture something that was cool and then tell, you know, what was going on when I captured that moment. It gave like a, a vehicle to do that. So yeah, I'm really obsessed about the things that I'm passionate about. But to be fair, you said an Olympus and it doesn't matter what model it is. An Olympus uh, only makes mark, micro four thirds sensors. So <laughs> like it was, it was an easy, it was an easy. All right. All yeah. right. But you still knew that I didn't say, <laughs> I mean, you, it's, it's, we were talking about hobbies and how, uh, you you take those addictive things and point them into different ways and uh, and create healthy habits with them and you seem to have done that pretty well. I appreciate that. You're taking your own advice. <laughs> yeah, it's working. Yeah, it seems to. I mean, I don't know your entire life, but you got your stuff together. You you had some challenges, were able to work through them and and learn and grow from them, and now now you have a little bit more purpose. Yeah. You know, with your life, which you maybe wouldn't have had that purpose if you didn't go through that. You know, now you get the opportunity to focus that attention in a meaningful way for a meaningful reason. And you get to use your experiences to the benefit of other people. Well, I appreciate you for recognizing that. And I, I know we talked about it a little bit before, but I do think the people with the most troubled past are the most useful to the world and to the society. And I feel like we're at a weird point. I mean, we've always done it, but we're at a weird point where cancel culture, and I'm not saying a lot of people that have been canceled deserved it, and but there is, it's really dangerous to only want squeaky clean people in the public eye. And it's, it's impossible. You don't want, you don't want to ask somebody that's always had a good credit score how to build up credit. You want somebody that's had a shit score <laughs> that has gotten their credit good. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you don't want to, you can imagine, and I've been in, I've, and you maybe have been in this situation too, where you're addicted to drugs, you're on drugs, and someone's trying to save you or something, you know, it's like, you can't get on my level, man. Yeah. Like, you can't, you don't have what it takes to coach me through this, to understand where I'm coming from, to like, talk about this with me like you just don't have the experience nothing against you I, yep. you're trying whatever but ideally what you get in that scenario is somebody who's uh, learned from those experiences and and now is in a position to educate or help or share teach whatever it is I love it. We're all a little broken. That's the thing. And not and maybe we're a little broken. We're a little this. We're a little that. We're all different, right? But like, nobody's perfect. Nobody yep. gets through this life without experiencing hardship or or um, anxiety and some depression and some of these other things. And so, normalizing those things and allowing some space for people to be wrong and to work through being wrong. I'm wrong a lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just, a, that's the thing is I'm wrong a lot. I've done a lot in my life. I could have done better, you know? And, uh, but now as a 40 year old, 41 year old, I have the benefit of, of all those experiences because I've, I've been able to learn from them and, and, 
you know, hopefully uh, become a better person as a result. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> well, thanks, dude, man. I appreciate you sharing. It was worth, I know we were kind of chatting while we were riding, but um, I felt like it was a topic worth, yeah, just kind of talking about a little bit more serious setting and not just like right while we're riding our bikes. But a lot of people drink, you know, a lot of people do drugs. Yep. And I still find myself pretty woefully ignorant to what kind of resources are out there. And so getting to hear your story and learning a little bit from you today, yeah, not bikepacking related, but bikepacking has been like a healthy drug that you've poured your, you know, yourself into. And like I said, we're all people and we all, everybody listening to this podcast is a person. And uh, I think that there's value in sharing your experience and hopefully some people can, yeah, take, take something out of that. I sure hope it provides even one person, you know, with uh, a little bit more knowledge. But yeah, I, I cycling, even if it isn't bikepacking related exactly like cycling, I use it very regularly to kind of calm the storm in between my ears yeah. for sure. And uh, and I, I, most of my amends that I make to, to my wife, I make on the way home from a bike ride because for the first time in a week, I'm clear you know uh, and i realize oh shit i was a dick to her yeah the other night i need to apologize right and uh it's one of the most useful tools and one of the things that i get the most out of um so yeah. well i i couldn't agree more with that yeah i think a lot of people use the bike as therapy and it is a great therapeutic tool but sometimes it's not enough and sometimes yeah having a sponsor or having a facility you know whatever resources are available yeah and then and then you come back to the bike yep absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> then, it, then it's your healthy drug it is my healthy drug it's both of that's i mean that's kind of the interesting thing is we both have a very similar history with drug abuse uh and on all this stuff and like we both use bike packing and cycling as a way to just keep everything in check, man. Just, you know, it's, it's a drug. It gets you the endorphins. It, you know, makes you feel good about yourself because you're productive. You did something. Yep. And I, I find that one of the greatest benefits is like you said, the opportunity to work through, just let your brain free, you know, and like, and, and the things that uh, should be bothering you are probably going to boil to the surface, right? Yep. Like, um, I don't think you necessarily have to seek them out. If you just go, that that thing's going to boil to the surface and you're going to be able to hopefully work through it, you know. But that time is important, man. That's another thing people don't do is take the time to do that mental inventory and mm -hmm. to, to spend that time with themselves. That's another thing that people were so inundated and were so, we're not bored. We're so, um, there's always stuff to do. Huh? Yeah, distracted. Distracted. That we're just not spending enough time, I don't think, thinking about I don't know, anything. Like, what do we want? Did I like that? Did I act appropriately? Did I treat that person well? Yeah. Like, are we spending time thinking about those things? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean. Long I'm, bike rides are great for it. Yeah. And oftentimes it's just thank you. You know, like thank you to my wife for mm -hmm. letting me go on this long bike ride. So I'll call her. If, even if I haven't done something shitty in that week that I can think of, I'm still calling her saying, thank you for letting me, you know, go on this yeah. bike ride. I, I know the weekends are for us, but thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, even it's just little stuff like that, feeling gratitude. And, uh, yeah, there's just something special about 
how you feel after, during and after a bike ride. Yeah, it's the littlest things that make the biggest difference. Cliche, but very true, I think. Yeah, it doesn't always have to be like a big grand thing. And it doesn't even have to be a big bike ride, man. Even the like 10-mile ones around the block at night are just clutch to just like snap you out of, man, all kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I can keep going forever and ever. Let's uh, enjoy the fire and uh, then we'll pick back up tomorrow on the route and let the people know what we're seeing or something. All right. Sounds good. All right, man. All right, Maxwell, how are you feeling? <clears throat> I'm uh I'm happy to be happy to be done. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little sun fried, if you can't tell. Oh man, I was gonna say this is like when the real endurance effort like kicks in. So we just finished uh day two on the ride and uh we're sitting in the van in a Sunco parking lot because we wanted some Gatorade <laughs> badly. <laughs> so um not the most picturesque spot I've ever done a... Ow. <laughs> got a cramp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a fun one when it's like, all right, let's just keep our shit together yep. for like 10 more minutes, and yeah. then we can wrap this puppy up. So uh, what can we say about day two? I think, I mean, you know, from my my perspective, I wanted to kind of just share... Yeah, what I thought about the route overall, some of my impressions and takeaways from the two days. You know, first off, I'd say that, you know, today we did 30 miles and it was kind of more of the same, but that's a good thing. It You know, the whole route was remote. Some of it was gravel, some of it was paved, but all of it primarily was, you know, low trafficked and very beautiful. Like the thing that I kept coming back to in my mind was just the diversity of everything that you're seeing from the plants and animals, the lizards that are scurrying around. And I mean, all the colors from the wildflowers and you got rock outcroppings and grass fields and trees. And it's like, it's just, uh, it's a lot, you know, we saw a lot of wildlife on the route, uh, a lot of snakes, which I really enjoyed. So yeah, I just, I mean, I, I was thinking about it today as we were riding and like, to me, this route is probably my favorite route in Texas, you know, to do, you know, I mean, there's only four routes, right? So we got the two in Big Bend National Park and both of those, you're going to need four or five days to complete them for most people. I mean, that's, a, and you need yep. a day to drive out there. I mean, those are big yep. adventurous, you know, more expeditions. Um, and then, you know, we have my route that's in Sam Houston National Forest and and your route. And, and that's what we were kind of talking about earlier is, I, I mean, it's a great route. I mean, there's a lot of people that get a lot of value out of my route, but it's a lot of East Texas piney woods, which is what East Texas is known for. So that's what you're going to get. But out here, it's just like never ending beauty and diversity. And you just never get bored. You're, it's just a feast for your eyes the whole time. Yeah. I mean, the Texas Hill Country, there is something special out here with the diversity um, and just the different types of terrain moving from live, limestone to granite. And uh, just, yeah, like you said, all the different vegetation and wildlife. And, yeah, this, this route definitely has something special on it. And uh, I just wanted to say that um, I think you're a little harder on yourself about the amount of pavement that's on the route. Um, so to set the record straight, the pavement that's on the route is very quaint. It's, like, very, like, back road, low traffic. I mean, we saw hardly any cars, that, you know, all both days. Um, so yeah. And, and personally, 
I don't really care about the surface type as much. It's more about like getting away from cars and people and just being out there in a beautiful place. So, you know, I think everybody can make their own like opinion on what they like to ride. But for me, I don't really give a crap if it's pavement or gravel. It's like, are these great roads that have great scenery and I don't have to worry about getting hit by a car? Sign me up. You yeah. interested? Yeah. I mean, the it, it is, you know, they're pretty much single lane pavement roads. Uh, yeah. a little bit wider than than one lane for the most part when it is that pavement but it but it also makes it more accessible for a lot more riders you know we saw you know kurt that was riding it yesterday yeah. had slicks on and she was doing just fine except for a couple of the sandy bits she said but yeah um it, it does make it a whole lot more accessible for all types of riders i was thinking about what other tips from actual the campsite i was trying to think of you know like if you're a fisherman there's supposed to be some really good fishing in the lano river right there for swimming purposes we didn't get in because neither of us brought like a change of clothes or anything but the water looked like i mean it was deep it's like we're into summer here and uh the pertinalis was really low we were looking at it the other day or we saw it the other day and um, but the Lano was flowing. It was deep. It, uh, you know, so I, I don't, I can't speak to how it is all, all year round, but, um, if you're into fishing and swimming and stuff, it seems like a yeah. pretty sweet campsite for that. Yeah. I mean the, so Randy Lifesti, the, the owner of the general store dumped, I think like 1200 trout in the Lano river for, for people to fish, uh, because he wanted to bring more fishermen to that hole. So, yeah, there, there's great fish there. I, I'm just not too big of a fisherman. Yeah, neither one of us are fishermen. So <laughs> we're. But if you are a fisher person, a fisherman, a fisher person, a, a person who fishes. <laughs> uh, yeah, any other, any other tips for the route? I mean, this is such a straightforward route. It really is. Like, the only other thing that I would say is a consideration, especially since we're recording this, I mean, today's like, Tomorrow's June 1st, right? Something like that. And uh, some people may be tempted to come out after they hear this episode, which I think is great. Um, But it's it's really hot, man. Like, we both underestimated the heat. We're both from Texas. or Where where are you from? I'm from Texas, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I just try to do all my riding in the summer before, like, 9, 10-ish. So I'll get out early. And so I'm I'm not used to this type of heat. I'm, I'm a little fried. But most of today, we got overcast it was right around noon that it really started shining on us again well it really showcased how impactful the sun is because like you know the first 20 miles i think was was pretty easy going we might have been a little bit tired but i mean spirits were high because we had cloud cover there was a nice breeze the sun wasn't wasn't beating down on us so um yeah it was kind of an, an, an epic lollygag as my friend chris johnson on instagram would say but yeah as soon as that sun came out it was like a flip switch it's like man, I'm kind of nauseous. My legs are kind of giving out on me. I'm getting a headache. And I forget, you know, as long, even though I've lived here my entire life, I forget every year how hot it gets. So that would be my only caution about this is be a, a mindful of the heat and um, bring extra water. Like we brought two liters and I think easily three or four liters would have been fine. Yep. Yeah. Bring extra water. Uh, we did learn from Herman, the owner of Oxford Ranch. If you drop five ten bucks probably five bucks per vehicle you have there um, to use the facilities they have a shower there so if you bring an extra change of clothes 
when you finish the route, you can shower off, which is a nice. T- that's you. You were able to shower off, and that was nice. Oh, at uh, yeah, at the camp where you park at, yep. where we love. What's that? That's Oxford, right? Oxford Ranch. Yep. Yeah, Oxford Ranch. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to mention that too. Is that there's a shower, and I so I just took advantage of that, and that was. I mean, it was hot, so I didn't have any. I didn't have a towel or any soap or anything, but I turned it on. It was ice cold water, and so I just rinsed off, and you know, already feeling way better than I was um, like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. Another tip would be for uh, Lifesti Campground, like on the the river, the way the route is designed. Make sure to ask Bobette, that, or make sure to let her know that you're a bike packer, yep. because they there's a RV hookups, and then there's also primitive camping that she just expanded on. Um, so if you let her know that you're a bike packer that doesn't need electric hookups or anything for RVs, you, you'll you'll more than likely be able to find a, a spot. Yeah, I, I I'm glad you mentioned that cause, mentioned that because I wanted to uh, bring it up as well. Like because of your route, she said that she opened up primitive camping, and she was like, "Y'all don't need anything." You know, it's easy. Just open up some land here. I'll mow it for you. Put your tent down, you know, and that's all you need. And I told you I went on that hike or a little, like, walk. And so I walked around. And she had mowed or whoever did it. They mowed a lot. And there's quite a few more, like, picnic tables and a much, much bigger area than even where we were. So, yeah, I think and I think that's important if you just tell her, hey, we're bikepackers. We're going to be riding in. She knows all about what's going on. She knows you. She knows the route. And she knows that we don't need that much. So, you know, yeah, good tip. Good tip. Bring your camera. Bring your camera. The springtime is, I mean, it's, here's the thing. You can't put into words nor into a picture just the the complexity of like seeing cactuses and rocks and trees and flowers and just like it's just a lot uh and um it just you kind of have to come and see it for yourself yeah and and don't be afraid to ride it in the in the winter months either the majority of the times i've ridden this route were in winter and it's it's a different type of beauty it's not as green and vibrant but you still get to see the change in topography you get to see all the loose livestock it's still an amazing uh, route and so do you have more visibility like because some of the foliage is gone and stuff like that yeah absolutely yeah so without that to like you know distract you you can focus more on like the topography like you were saying maybe mm-hmm. you see more wildlife and stuff like that yeah not as many snakes <laughs> so if you're a snake lover definitely do it in the springtime <laughs> yeah i was in heaven with the snakes i picked up one or just one yeah yeah there was a big one that i couldn't couldn't quite get up on fast enough. I'm curious to like send that picture to see what type. Yeah. I've never seen one like that before. I am too. Well, good job, man. Seriously, dude, my girlfriend came out and did it solo and just wouldn't shut up in a good way about how awesome it was. As soon as I got done, sent her a message. And I was like, hey, just finished around. And she's like, isn't it the best thing ever? Exclamation mark. I'm like, yeah, it's a really great. It's, you know, it's just a good, clean route. Um, the campsite was wonderful. The host was wonderful. It has amazing freaking burgers at the general store. You got a river that you can swim in or fish in. And it's, I mean, 10 out of 10. It got yeah. it all. And if you have, uh, this is one one other tip. Uh, if you are a bike packer that has a partner that isn't into bike packing, it's a great spot to have your partner meet you at the campground you can do the bike packing part of it and then you would meet at at the campground yeah. or if you just want to do the biking part and meet at the campground um you know my wife and i have done that too so oh sure 
Yeah, always. Uh, that's always a good option for couples that don't bike pack together, but like to camp together. It's like, hey, I'll meet you there. Yep. Yeah, and it's all you know. It's like then there's a car if something goes wrong, <laughs> you know, yep, a thunderstorm exactly. comes in or or whatever. So, well, anyway, thank you, man. I think it's uh, it shows that you know you picked up this about a year ago and picked up a camera and just uh, it was something you wanted to do and it really just, just just speaks to like anybody can do this and um, create a lot of value uh, for the community so appreciate it dude yeah thanks for having me on really yeah. appreciate it well I'm not letting you go that quick <laughs> All right. Uh, I got one more. What? So I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I, I know you well enough to know you're a very driven person. I mean, I can tell you're hyper-focused. You love this stuff. I don't think this is the last route you're going to create. I mean, what, do you have some other ideas that you're kicking around maybe for routes or other things? Or Yeah. I mean, I, I was talking about it earlier. I don't know if the, the writing recording picked it up, but I, I do want to put out a route near palmetto state park i know there's a ton of gravel routes out there already so it's nothing too new but there is a cool route going from lockhart to palmetto state park that i'm interested in putting out uh, as well as a bike rafting trip down in the devil's river I, i've gone down to the devil's river quite a lot with a buddy of mine who has a lease down there and it's just the most pristine river in texas and uh, when i saw everybody in their bike rafting trips you uh, recently <laughs> as well as like yeah a couple a couple others out there there's the guy uh, steve doom oh yeah fassbender um, yeah their four corners uh bike pack rafting guides or whatever. yeah and i i see them doing these amazing journeys through you know utah and arizona's like high desert through those red canyons and i'm like man that would be cool to highlight the devil's river and you, the the terrain down there is really cool jeep road double track uh, even four-wheel drive cars have a hard time getting up and down, so I thought yeah. it'd be fun to to try to bike that down, and then because there's a ton of paddlers along the river too. So you know, if anything goes south, at least you you know that there's marshals out there to look after you. But well, if you're a bike pack rafting, couldn't you uh, or bike rafting? Couldn't you just like let's say your bike broke, you just hop in the river? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of uh, I've thought about that before. You know, if something goes wrong, it's like oh, I'll just hop on the. I mean, we did it on in Arkansas, right? We were like, it just took too long. We were just running out of time. It was cold and wet. We we're like, let's just get back on the bikes and be back at our cars in an hour. Yeah, and the only thing the only thing that worries me is uh, from the north. There's a lot of private property down there. I mean, because we're in Texas, obviously, but there's a north portion of the Devil's River. Uh, natural area that's public land that the public can access and then 20 miles down the river there's a southern section of uh, public land and so you would have to make it that whole stretch of river uh, or else you wouldn't be able to get out on the land unless you know how many miles it is uh, 20 miles that's not bad mm -mm. that's i would think that's about perfect in my estimation i like to do you know eight to ten maybe twelve you know average of ten miles a yeah. day and they have that seems about right and they have three primitive campsites along the Did, river for yeah. paddlers so. oh well and then obviously you don't have to use the campsites mm -hmm. i would think unless that's different well, there um you can so you can camp on islands in the riverbank but sandbanks too yeah but all yeah. the or sandbars or whatever mm -hmm. yeah yeah but all the 
like inland properties is all right as soon as you get off that sandbar that's a no-no but yeah if the water is low and i'm not a a too expert but yeah i mean i think that's kind of how it goes right yeah yeah okay (laughs) i don't want to put too much misinformation out there (laughs) a little bit of misinformation is okay yeah a little misinformation leads to a good time a lot of misinformation (laughs) leads to a gun in your face yeah hey boy what you doing on my property yeah i wouldn't um I wouldn't test it out there with private property. And uh, we got to, dude, our hands are so fried. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, you look like a lobster. (laughs) Yeah, but only on the hands. Yeah. No, you did pretty good other than on the hands. All right, buddy. Well, anything else? I think think we covered most of it. I think so. Uh, Where can people find more information about the route? And also, um, if they have questions and stuff about the route, are you cool with people reaching out to you and and talking about it? Yeah. Yeah, So why don't you talk about how people can find that Uh, or find you? Yeah, so um, mtjohnston8 is my Instagram handle. I don't have too many too many followers i don't get too many messages so yeah <laughs> i it won't get lost in the in the mix so yeah I, I i love when people have reached out so far and said yeah. that they enjoyed the route or asked me questions about it so uh, feel free to contact me through instagram as well as uh, email at, at maxwell.t.johnston at gmail.com i'm pretty quick with um, my emails but yeah I, I i would love to answer any questions uh, i tried to do the best that i could when it came to all the must know highlight yeah. information and it's I, pretty straightforward yeah and i think we covered even more i think so it's like the dogs we didn't know about the dogs that information wasn't provided on bikepacking.com yeah so uh i don't know if we ever said it but the route is published on bikepacking.com it's called the texas hill country loop and uh, i just go to the search engine i type in texas there's only four routes so it's like pretty <laughs> easy to find <laughs> yep. it's the one with the really well there's a lot of good pictures on there but uh yeah. All right, buddy. Sounds good. Well, thanks for showing me the route um, and the extra bonus four miles. I liked all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. That's uh, that was that was free. That was pro bono. Yeah, man. And appreciate you sharing uh, some of your personal history and stuff, man. Uh, it's getting nice to know you on that level too. And yeah, I'm happy to see you doing something productive with your life. I was worried about you there for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I turned it around. Yeah, yeah, you're doing all right. Yeah, I'm I'm doing okay. All right, buddy. All right. All right, all right. Thank you all so much for uh, tuning in today, and thanks to Maxwell Johnston for showing me around and being such an awesome dude, great member of the bikepacking community, and it just shows that you don't have to be like an OG bikepacker or anything like that to contribute, and I really liked his idea and his perspective about, you know, people who are, you know, beginners probably can relate better to people who are beginners and stuff like that, so... Yeah, I think we said it enough on this episode, but don't forget your water on this route. That's all I'm going to say. But you should 100% go ride it and uh, shoot me a message. Let me know what you think. Um, But I know you're going to love it. All right, a little housekeeping real quick from the Bikes or Death store. Um, We've got some new pennants. Pennants are flags. You hang them in their house. You can hang them in your garage, your bedroom, whatever you want. They're pretty radical. So uh, anyway, go in and scoop one up if you dare before they're all gone. And uh, one other item, I have it on good authority that the titanium flask will be in stock either today or tomorrow. Be on the lookout. I always announce it on Instagram and a great way to stay up to date with stuff like that is also our newsletter. So you can look for a link on how to sign up at bikesfordeath.com. And also that's a great place to go shopping for all your Bikes for Death merch. 
Just saying. Okie dokie, everybody. I think that's it for today's episode. I hope y'all are enjoying watching the Tour Divide. It's great seeing those dots go down a map. Uh, looks like we got a nice little race going on between Brendan and Jay Peterberry. Uh, Brendan's been like keeping him at bay, not by much, but he's been able to like maintain a nice, like I've seen it as low as eight miles up to like 25 miles. But anyway, great, great little race going on there at the beginning. So hopefully everybody's enjoying, uh, some dot watching and, uh, you're able to get out and go ride, even though it is hot as fuck in Texas right now. I'll tell you that. All right, well, if you don't follow my social media, you probably don't know that I just got back from another podcasting trip to Stillwater, Oklahoma. Um, you may recall that I was just there like three or four weeks ago, but I had such a good time and it was a really great vibe and um, I just wanted to go back. So I uh, really wanted to go and talk to Bobby Wintle. That was the big one. Uh, I've been wanting to talk to him for a while. He was super stoked on the interview that I did uh, with Dr. Seth Wood. And so I was like, do you want to go? And he said a thousand percent. So, um, you know what, when the iron's hot, you strike. And, uh, yeah, we struck hard. We, um, I shouldn't say we struck hard. We didn't strike out, but we went hard. We recorded four hours. It's just Bobby. Um, this, this podcast is going to give people an opportunity to really like get to know who Bobby Wintel is. And I'm really excited about it. So um, anyway, that is coming up next week. And uh, also I was there, like I said earlier in the podcast, um, I did a Facebook Live with Dr. Seth Wood. That's for the patron-only podcast, The After Party. And uh, obviously if you're a patron, go check that out. And if you're not, and you'd like to, you can find out more information at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. Thank you for your consideration. All right, everybody from me and the entire bikes or death family. Thank you for listening. Now go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike. You ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. 